We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Formerly legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis. Good morning. And today is 9-11 and the 22nd anniversary of that horrible, horrible day in American history. And I know for a lot of us listening, uh, we remember that day. It is not something that we just read out of the history books. We will all never forget exactly where we were when the first uh, airplane hit the tower in Uh, New York City, and it really changed the landscape of the modern world forever. And it's a reminder to me this morning of how much we need to continue to pray for the safety and security of our great nation and also pray for the aftermath of how our leaders respond when tragedies occur, when events in history occur that we need to respond to with wisdom, because a lot of what happened in the aftermath of uh, 9-11 really wasn't uh, helpful for the safety and security of our nation. But through the uh, understandable fear after 9-11, it uh, really caused a lot of our rights and privacy rights uh, to be eroded through some of the legislation that was passed in the aftermath, some of those executive orders. And so we need to now uh, look not not just back at uh, 9-11 and some of these tragedies, but also what's going on today. And what's going on today in specifically New Mexico is a, a really concerning Uh, thing going on for this country. So the New Mexico governor suspended gun rights in Albuquerque for a quote-unquote public health emergency. This is another one of those instances where fear uh, has caused the uh, Democrat governor to simply issue an executive order and declare a public health emergency and think that she has the power to then suspend the Second Amendment. And this is what New Mexico Governor Michelle Grisham said on Friday. This is cut one. You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your your carrying license? With one exception, and that is if there's an emergency and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right, in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old and all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency 
we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? I took an oath to uphold those two. And if we ignore this growing problem without being bold, I've said to every other New Mexican, your rights are subrogated to theirs. And they are not, in my view. Uh, wait a minute. Okay. Uh, you're saying about crimes. There are already laws against the crimes, so how are their rights? I got it. But, but again, if I'm unsafe, who's standing up for that right? If this climate is so out of control, somebody should do something. I'm doing as much as I know to do. Madam Governor, yep. do you really think that criminals are going to hear this message and not carry a gun in Albuquerque on the streets for 30 days? Uh, no. But here's what I do think. It's a pretty resounding message. So that was Governor Michelle Grisham out of New Mexico. And she also posted on Twitter, quote, we need to do everything we can to protect our kids and our communities from the scourge of gun violence. The fact is, these legislators have no plan. As governor, it's my job to take action and put New Mexican safety first, not to complain about problems we are elected to solve, unquote. So this order cites the recent cases of gun-related violence in and around the city, including the killing of an 11-year-old boy and uh, another young girl. And so so this is completely and wholly unconstitutional. Uh, I responded on social media to the governor and said, you weren't elected to, quote unquote, solve problems. You were elected to uphold the United States and New Mexico constitutions and preserve and protect the people's rights in your state. You're failing miserably and deserve impeachment and removal. The discussion of impeachment and removal coming as this uh, 30-day order is in place that really, I think, is just a test of how much she can get away with. And potentially, um, I also agree with my my good friend, uh, Jonathan Turley, who is a, a legal analyst, and he wrote in one of his pieces uh, commenting on this particular order that it could also just be a calculated effort to evade a ruling by making the period of suspension so short that it becomes moot before any final decision is reached by the court. So this coming after declaring a public health emergency around gun-related violence. So this is exactly what legal analysts and uh, constitutional conservatives uh, like me and like many uh, Republicans were warning in the aftermath of the COVID narrative, where governors and executive officers took a pretext of a public health emergency and continued to expand their powers to do actions and and to foist their petty tyranny on the entire country and on their constituents. And this also marks a, uh, a way that the government is being weaponized against uh, not just conservatives, but against Americans to infringe upon our rights in an unconstitutional manner. Governors and executive officers have no power to simply declare an emergency and then attempt to use their power 
under emergency powers acts in their states to then go and act in whatever manner they see fit. This is an unconstitutional abrogation of power from the legislative branch. Note in Governor Grisham's tweet, she said, the fact is these legislators have no plan. So she now thinks that she's going to step into the capacity of both the House and the Senate in New Mexico and just decide for them because they are unwilling to act. That's not what anyone elected a governor to do. That's not the purpose or role or actual power of a governor to simply say, well, since the legislature isn't doing what I want them to do, then I guess I'm elected to act in the stead of the legislature. This is exactly what a lot of us argued in the midst of these COVID executive orders that were also unconstitutional was that it was a borrowing of legislative authority that governors were simply enacting through executive orders and through powers that they were harnessing through Emergency Powers Act. An emergency, by definition, is a temporary act that is sudden, that that a governor has to utilize resources of the state to respond to immediately and timely because a legislature doesn't have the opportunity to come into session and address a particular problem. That's the definition of an emergency. It's like what Governor DeSantis did a couple of weeks ago with the executive, uh, other executive officers that responded directly to a hurricane threat. That's literally the definition of an emergency is a hurricane hits the coast. Uh, there are things that need to be in place for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks in the aftermath of a uh, of a weather emergency and the executive branch can respond through the emergency powers that are given to a governor but that has been contemplated by a legislature just saying that gun violence is somehow a public health emergency simply because the absolute tragedy of a killing of of a child has happened the, the reporter that was asking this governor uh, in that press conference was absolutely right to say, well, isn't this just a crime? And we already have laws on the books that will address crimes. And we don't have what's called pre-crime in America. And this is what this Emergency Act is contemplating. She is trying to criminalize or pre-criminalize every single law-abiding citizen in Albuquerque to say that if you carry a gun now you are termed and a, a public health threat to the rest of uh, her constituents and so we are going to punish you and infringe upon your rights and take away your right under the Second Amendment to keep and bear arms and presume that you are a criminal and you're going to have to now wait under this order 30 days before you can exercise your constitutionally protected rights. And what did anyone else in Albuquerque that is under this order do to have their rights infringed upon? Well, nothing. And this is the danger of these so-called public health emergencies that are so broad and wide sweeping that not only are borrowing from the legislature's power, where the legislature hasn't contemplated any any such ban. And even if the legislature did, it would likely be challenged in court like 
uh, the New York ban that, that gave rise to uh, a, a couple of the Supreme Court cases recently, the Heller decision about a decade ago. There have already been contemplations of legislative action that have tried to infringe upon your and my right to keep and bear arms that have been struck down. But in the due course of legislature contemplation, at least the laws were attempting to be promulgated by the correct legislative authority within the state. And a lot of these, um, and, and the New York case was a little bit different, but uh, we don't have time to get into the particulars of that today. But at least a lot of these challenges have been uh, from the legislative branch. This is a huge threat to our freedoms when you have a governor and an executive officer trying to do exactly what I believe the entire COVID narrative set up a pretext for, which was to declare an, a, a quote unquote public emergency. And it's interesting that she even calls it public health because health was, of course, uh, how all of these other governors and executive agents were trying to uh, to change the law and to manipulate the powers of of their emergency acts in their states was through this this health emergency. So she's trying to declare a health emergency and saying for 30 days next will it be 60, 90 indefinite like the covid orders. That's where this is going. And the next quote unquote public health emergency might be around climate change to say, well, you citizen of the state are uh, are not using your carbon credits uh, sufficiently, you're you're overbroad on your uh, carbon footprint in society. So we are going to say that no one can utilize any more of their carbon footprint for 30 days. So guess what? Now no one can go um, get gasoline at the pump. No one can travel, and you can see the di- absolute disaster that that this would cause for society if governors just on their own whim were able to declare an emergency that is is based out of absolutely nothing except their own response to a perceived emergency and trying to then simply infringe upon the rights of everyone and declare everyone as a threat and a danger, which is exactly what they did in COVID. Everyone was a walking incubator and everyone was a perceived threat of perpetuating this pandemic. And now in New Mexico, everyone who is a law-abiding citizen who carries a gun is a perceived threat to this public health emergency. And so we have to infringe upon everyone's rights and no one can exercise them. This is a danger to society. We have to, uh, to the U.S. Constitution, legislators have to rewrite their Emergency Powers Act and confine that to actual, articulable, defined emergencies. Otherwise, we are going to see out-of-control leftist petty tyrants like this New Mexico governor continue to try to push the envelope and see as much as they can get away with. So the New Mexico governor needs to be shut down. We will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Did you know that every day, Preborn's network of clinics experiences 200 miracles? 
How? Preborn gives women with unplanned pregnancies a window into their womb through free ultrasounds, introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside. Once she meets her child inside her womb and hears their heartbeat, the chance of her baby's life doubles. Because of the generosity of you and me who donate just $28 to sponsor an ultrasound, Preborn can do this. The cost of a dinner can save a life, the most worthwhile investment you can make. All gifts are tax deductible and go entirely to saving babies. Someday you may meet a baby that you rescued and you can give them a hug. Or maybe they'll give you a hug. Maybe they'll even save your life as they grow and pursue meaningful careers. One thing is for sure, you will never regret saving a child's life because life is a miracle. Please donate your best gift today. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. And we have a massive win against the Biden administration last week for blatant censorship of free speech on social media platforms. All of you remember Attorney General Andrew Bailey, who has been fighting that fight out of the case of Missouri versus Biden. And the last time we spoke with him, this was going up to the Fifth Circuit, and they have now uh, ruled in favor of the Missouri case. And the attorney general notes that the court said that the federal uh, government engaged in, quote, a broad pressure campaign designed to coerce social media companies into suppressing content disfavored by the government. And the court also noted that the White House's threats were both explicit and subtle. So the White House repeatedly violated the First Amendment, and the court notes that uh, Biden's White House had also planned to punish social media platforms if they refused to censor speech. This is a huge win. So Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins us once again. Good morning, sir, and congratulations on a great victory for the uh, continued separation, as you call it, between uh, freedom of speech and big tech. Yeah, well, Jenna, thank you so much for having me on. This is an important, the most important First Amendment case in a generation. It's all about protecting our right to free speech. And, you know, honestly, we, we were confident in our ultimate success in this case, given the evidence that we put on. And I think that's the point that the national media is missing. It's not as if Andrew Bailey or the state of Missouri or the Missouri Attorney General's office just said, hey, we don't like that Joe Biden took some, some speech off of big tech social media platforms. We went to court in May and put on a quantum of evidence that convinced the district court judge that there were likely violations of the First Amendment. That's based on 20,000 documents that we obtained in discovery and numerous depositions we took. And the Department of Justice appealed the preliminary injunction that the district court granted us. And that's why we were at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. But the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals went back and reviewed all of that evidence opinion that was handed down on Friday, affirming the, the preliminary injunction, affirming the laying of that first brick and the wall of separation between tech and state, reviewed a lot of that evidence. And the magnitude of this vast censorship enterprise is really, really frightening if you, if you go through that opinion. And clearly, it, uh, it motivated and, and convinced the, uh, the three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And and you have a, a tweet on here, and this is a great thread for people who want to kind of just see the highlights. I'd encourage you to go and follow Attorney General Andrew Bailey on X, formerly known as Twitter, so that you can get these kinds of updates, uh, not just here on the show, but also as he tweets them and, and brings them to light. <clears throat> but you have a, a piece in here from the court that notes there has rarely ever been a, quote, coordinated campaign of this magnitude orchestrated by federal officials that jeopardized a fundamental aspect of American life. That's huge. That is enormous. And think about that in, in historical context. In 1798, in the first years of this nation's existence, the, uh, the, the party in power under uh, John Adams passed the, the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798 and was locking people up who publicly disagreed with the government's foreign policy positions. Think about that for a minute. So that it, this is worse than that. I mean, the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is saying that the order of magnitude of censorship that was going on between the federal government demanding big tech social media remove content is worse than the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798. I mean, that, that is monumental in its, its magnitude. This was, I think, the other thing that the the, the uh, public, the uh, uh, mainstream media is missing here is they keep saying, oh, well, look, I mean, the government has to be able to coordinate with big tech and has to be able to flag information it doesn't like. Well, Number one, no, it doesn't. Government retains its own right to speech. If they don't like what's being said out of big tech, they can utter their speech. But what they can't do is is censor speech. And, and it was clearly a coercion and collusive relationship. Uh, clearly the censorship was going on at the demand of Biden's White House and a, a spectrum of federal bureaucratic agencies. I think it's telling that, like you said, it was not only explicit threats, but also implicit threats. The court found that the White House and FBI used the inherent authority of their offices to demand and censor, uh, ultimately obtain the censorship of speech. So this isn't just the government talking to big tech. This is the government threatening big tech. There was always an unspoken or else. If you don't take down that content, we will harm you. That's what the government told big tech and big tech acquiesced to the demands of censorship. And this is just incredible because as you highlight, I think that's such an important point that there is no reason or rationale that the government has to be able to combat whatever it deems as misinformation or disinformation on social media and be able to censor the public square. I mean, that's what communist China does. I mean, that's what these countries that only want to push out government-approved propaganda onto the the media channels, that's what they do. And in America and under our U.S. Constitution, that is never something that we've ever suggested is an inherent power of government to be able to determine in its own power and on its own initiative what things they agree or disagree with that Americans are saying that somehow they are the arbiters of what is or is not misinformation. I mean, where are we at today in this country that anyone can possibly argue that the government ha- somehow has this kind of power? Well, the, and that's exactly right. The whole purpose of the Constitution is to protect us from the government. The purpose of the government is to protect our rights, the very foundational principle, behind the timeless principle, I might add, behind the First Amendment right to free speech is to give us the opportunity to disagree with our government. And the government should be protecting that right. Instead, what, what, what happened here is that Joe Biden and his uh, federal army of federal bureaucrats have weaponized the White House, the FBI, and a spectrum of bureaucratic agencies to violate our right to free speech. And I think it's important to note that the harm radiates to all social media users. It's not just the Tucker Carlson video that was taken down. It's not just 
the Tommy Laren post that was deplatformed. It, it is all social media users, and the court explicitly found that the harm continues today. The past chilling effect of government censorship has caused individuals to self-censor, thus the harm permeates today. And think about this. We're moving into an election cycle. We already know that they targeted speech related to COVID, and then it morphed into speech related to election interference. What's it going to be next? If they, they're, they're censoring speech, they disagree. If the federal government is censoring anyone that disagrees with the government, and it explicitly targets conservative speech, it's viewpoint discrimination, we've got to continue to erect that, build that wall between tech and state to protect the integrity of our election process and the free, fair, and open debate about the candidates and the issues as we move into next year's election cycle. And that's a really great point as well, is that what else are they going to, the the government going to to start targeting and saying, well, we now disagree with this narrative. And so we are going to try to censor uh, this particular viewpoint and and opinion, because this isn't just about the past and about the COVID narrative or about a past election. This could and and likely would be uh, impacting future discussions online and social media users. And you mentioned that this, all of the evidence so far has only come from you know about twenty thousand documents and what you've been able to, uh, to to read from discovery so far. But that probably isn't everything that's going on here. I'm guessing, right? I mean, there's probably other aspects that are going on that we don't even know about yet. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we know that the vast censorship enterprise grew so quickly under uh, under the Biden administration, that the federal government had to erect a new bureaucratic structure to manage it because they had so many censorship demands. We've already seen it more from COVID issues into election issues. Anyone that questions the integrity of an election, all of a sudden you're being deplatformed, shadow banned, de-emphasized, the content removed. I mean, please, you know, I, I think it's important to note that big tech changed its terms of service uh, at the demand of the White House, they changed their algorithm, algorithms to satisfy federal officials' demands. And you're right, there's no limiting principle to how far this will go. In court in May, the Department of Justice said that the COVID emergency justified the violation of our right to free speech. That somehow the, the Constitution, you know, it, it ebbs and flows in a national emergency. Or it's not as important in a national emergency. Well, that's ridiculous. Constitutional rights are timeless principles. It doesn't matter that it was pamphlets in 1798 under the Alien and Sedition Act and then radio in the 20s, television in the 50s, Internet in the 90s, and now big tech social media. These are timeless principles of freedom. And a national emergency can't uh, justify a violation of our rights because the national emergencies will never end. Look at what's going on in New Mexico. The governor of New Mexico has said, oh, well, we've got a public health crisis. I'm going to issue a health order to ban firearms. I mean, think about that. Again, if, you, if we allow federal officials or state officials to say that a national emergency justifies a violation of the Constitution, it will never end and we will lose our Constitution and we will lose our country. Yes, so well said. And I'm speaking with Attorney General Andrew Bailey out of the great state of Missouri. And I was talking about the New Mexico governor in the in the first segment and how this so-called declaration of a public health emergency now can just be extended in and overbroad in any sort of direction that an executive officer just perceives there to be some kind of danger. And, and there is no limiting principle. And we've seen the pretext uh, of an emergency be used over and over again. Again, starting with COVID and now with this so-called declaration of an emergency uh, for the infringement of gun rights. I mean, how how can we limit this? And what what do you think um, from a legislative perspective can help in terms of of cabining 
a, an emergency power into what it actually was contemplated to be used for, which is an actual emergency, not just a pretext to say, well, we're going to declare an emergency on anything that the legislature uh, hasn't done, in, in my view. I mean, because that's what's going on in New Mexico. She's saying, well, the legislature hasn't acted to foreclose everyone else's uh, gun rights in the manner that I want. So I'm just going to declare an emergency, become the legislature and issue this executive order. It's, it's totally just a power grab. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's authoritarian as authoritarianism at its worst. I think you're exactly right when you compare it to communist China or North Korea or, or you know, Stalinist uh, Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany. I mean, anytime you've got officials who seize power uh, and violate the separation of powers doctrine, let's go back to that principle. I mean, the original understanding of our uh, democratic republic, our constitutional structure, both the federal and state level, is that it is we, we must diffuse power over three branches of government, that if you concentrate power in one individual or one office, that that power will eventually become authoritarian. And that's exactly what we see going on in New Mexico under this governor who wants to say it's a national health emergency, if their legislature hasn't acted, then it is not an emergency. I would also point out that we see the same thing from the Biden White House, but it's almost more frightening coming from Biden because he's doing it behind, you know, behind a, the, in the shadows, behind a cloak of secrecy. He was shadow banning individuals. He was demanding censorship on big tech social media. Individuals that didn't even know they were being censored were suddenly removed, and they didn't understand why he changed the these secret algorithms and, and censorship policies at, at the White House's demand, at the federal officials' demand, and people didn't know it was happening. I mean, it's, it's almost worse coming from President Biden. Again, the harms are ongoing. Individuals are scared to talk about President Trump or scared to talk about COVID or scared to talk about uh, you know, question the integrity of their elections because they might be removed from social media platforms. So every social media platform user is impacted. I would also point out that all the speech that was censored was truthful information. It's not just that our rights were violated. There's an actual physical harm as well. I mean, people needed public health information upon which to make individual public or excuse me, individual health decisions. And they were deprived of that information due to this government censorship campaign. Yeah, and, and that's such a great point as well, uh, Attorney General Andrew Bailey, that the it is more frightening from the Biden administration what they were doing, because that was in secret and no one knew about it, where you have at least the New Mexico governor is out there publicly declaring what she's doing so that we can take steps to correct that and to curb her power and, and hopefully uh, you know get that completely mooted out. But what the Biden administration was doing was so covert that if uh, you had not been able to get this kind of discovery and and then eventually uh, have this lawsuit, then we may never have known uh, what was going on. And if Elon hadn't uh, released the Twitter files and you know some of this other transparency and accountability, we wouldn't know what our government is doing. And that's really a, a very scary thing if we sit back and say, okay, the the government may be taking action to censor or infringe upon our constitutionally protected rights where they have no power and we don't even know what's going on. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, again, I've used this example before, but I think it's really telling. If we were talking on our cell phones and we started saying things that the Department of Justice didn't like and they were muting us and we couldn't have that conversation on our cell phones, no one would tolerate that. So why is it any different on big social media platforms? 
Right. I mean, the, the only real difference is that uh, we're able to push this out to, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people instead of just whoever, uh, it, whether it's a one on one or it's a it's a conference call. And so that obviously to, to the government would would pose a, a greater threat, apparently, to them of, you know, this this disinformation. But it doesn't matter whether it's one on one or whether it's in the public square. We have a constitutionally protected right to freedom of speech, to political viewpoint and to all of these things. So where does this uh, go from here? So now that the Fifth Circuit has opined, is uh, the Biden administration going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court or uh, where do we anticipate this heading now? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the Department of Justice could seek on on bonk review and have the entirety of the Fifth Circuit look at the case. Uh, more likely, the case goes directly to the United States Supreme Court. I think that's the right answer. I mean, I think the Fifth Circuit even telegraphed that they understand that the, uh, you know, the, the constitutional violation of this magnitude is likely to end up at the United States Supreme Court. And 100 years from now, law students sitting in constitutional law class will be open up a textbook and read the case of Missouri v. Biden and uh, ultimately understand the importance of our right to free speech uh, because of the, the work that we're doing to push this forward, excited to, to continue to fight to protect our, our, our freedom of speech and our constitutional rights. And at the end of the day, I think, yeah, the, the United States Supreme Court is the ultimate landing spot. Well, and that just underscores the importance of why the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court matters. This is why uh, everyone who can vote in this country needs to be engaged in uh, voting in the next presidential election, because that will likely uh, have a an impact on the balance of the court. And hopefully, I, you know, I wish that we didn't have the liberal versus conservative uh, justices. I wish that it was just constitutionalists across the board, but that's not the country that we live in. But hopefully we will get a good opinion out of the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll continue to pray for that. And thank you so much, Attorney General Andrew Bailey, for your hard work in preserving and protecting our rights as Americans, as citizens, so that we can continue to live in a free society where we can express our political viewpoint without fear of government infringement. We will continue to follow that case, and we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, speaking of petty tyranny and uh, fear, <laughs> there is now a, a continued issue with uh, COVID-19 that school, some school districts across the country are now bringing mask mandates back and threatening to bring uh, mask mandates back, including a Maryland public elementary school that did reinstate COVID mask requirements and order some kids to wear N95 masks. So how should we respond uh, with school districts? Um, thankfully, I am in the free state of Florida where Governor De Santis has said that no mask mandates will occur on any level. I'm very grateful that uh, the at least the state of Florida is protected from this just ridiculous type of tyranny. But in uh, in some of these states where some school districts are continuing to implement this kind of thing and are contemplating this, uh, what do we do? So Bridget Ziegler, who is the director of the Leadership Institute School Boards Programs, joins me now. She also assisted in creating the Florida uh, parental 
uh, Bill of Rights, co-founded Moms for Liberty, and also co-founded the Florida Coalition of School Board Members. So, Bridget, thanks so much for joining. And, uh, you know, the mask mandates, I don't think any reasonable parent actually wants to see their kids subjected to this in state-funded schools again. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I have to tell you, uh, this is it's the masks, as we have seen, is really, truly nothing but theater to create fear and and invoke um, control. Um, As uh, the director of school board programs for Leadership Institute, I have the fortunate ability to go across the country and talk to moms and dads who have never been politically active. And the number one thing I hear from them that really got them up to fight for this act, uh, is, is about what they started to do to our children, starting with COVID. I actually was at dinner last night with um, some moms from Maryland and Virginia, uh, and I have heard the Sims thing from all the way from California to, to, to New Jersey, that it came, to, it came down to when the masks were on our children and they were keeping our children out of school, uh, or not listening to them when they went to school board meetings, that was when they said, you know what, I'm getting involved. And so uh, when I see this uh, attempt to re-instill uh, that fear, especially after we see the detrimental impact it's had on our children's academic success and mental health, it is mind-boggling to me to see that this is being reintroduced in uh, you know, a school district in Maryland. We're seeing other, other uh, areas in the country kind of floated around. But I will tell you, I have the ultimate confidence that there is no way these parents across America will allow this to happen again. And part of our job in Leadership Institute is really to help them be effective uh, at mobilizing, uh, being activists, and and really running for school board because we need to change these policymakers who have our children and their interests at the forefront. And again, as you mentioned, I'm fortunate as well, like you said, to live in Florida um, but it, it, it's still, we, we always have to have a pulse on these things across the country and, and in every corner. It's, it's really alarming to see. Yeah, well, and we, we need to hopefully make more of America look like Florida in terms of uh, governors that are willing to stand up for our children and for our children's best interests and for everyone's uh, best interest as well. I mean, even as an adult, uh, the whole mask theater was absolutely ridiculous. I hated doing it, even, even just for the sheer inconvenience of the fact that, you know, you get makeup all over your mask and it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's such a disgusting thing. I mean, it really felt like after, uh, you know, wearing a mask even all day it was so dirty and gross and there is nothing that has come out that has suggested that masks were even effective i mean even just as recently as uh, you know, the last couple of months and the last couple of years, uh, some of these doctors and health officials that were suggesting initially that mask mandates were appropriate had totally walked that back. So under what sort of theory are they suggesting that, especially for kids, where we know that they're not in a high-risk category for the COVID-19 virus anyway, what, what is the point beyond sheer control? I don't think there is any other point beyond sheer control. And I, I remember, you know, listen, my background's in risk management and risk consulting. So I do risk assessments for a living. And uh, it, you didn't have to be an epidemiologist to see that putting a mask on a child really would would undermine any potential mitigation that those masks allegedly had. <laughs> They'd be picking them up, touching them, putting them on dirty. I mean, you know, they didn't. It, it was just the lack of common sense. And when I look back, and I think many Americans across the country, actually, I think across the globe, are seeing that how quickly the the, the tyrannical kind of 
policymaking and government were able to get people in line just by invoking fear. And so I don't believe that there is anything outside of control. Um, it's no different than in, uh, you know, in, in trying to flex their muscle. And really, we see more and more institutions um, imposing and putting intentional barriers up against parental rights. And just falls right into that aspect. Parents need to have the decisions to be able to make their, their own decisions on what uh, is in the best interest of their child and their health and well-being. And I can tell you, this mother will never again allow anyone to put a mask on my child. Uh, in Florida, I'll never forget going to a you know, Disney World, and it, and it was actually the last time I'd been, um, and it was kind of disappointing, and I remembered why, I realized why. Our children had masks on them, and it was it just completely alters everything about their social emotional well-being. Yet we have school districts across the country harping on the focus of social well-being. So it is a lot of uh, it's a it's a lot of hypocrisy. It's a lot about control. And I know moms and dads across America will not stand for it. So uh, and that's my job now to make sure we help them, train them, and to be effective. And, and I have no doubt uh, that they will take back their school boards from every corner of this country. But it's not just school boards. It's other levels of government, and, and we do need people to be paying attention because <laughs> we're not going down that path again. Yeah, we, we really do. And I'm speaking with Bridget Ziegler, who's the director of the Leadership Institute School Board Programs. And you make another really good point that I think is so important that it isn't just that masks are totally ineffective, they're annoying, and, you know, all of these things uh, of why we should say, you know, there, there's no rationale or reason that the government needs to bring these back. But especially for kids, there's no benefit to masking, but there actually is an articulable harm. Um, I mean, these are children who are uh, developing their uh, social and um, social health cues. They're they're developing their mental health, and there are actually detriments. Um, I remember talking to my sister-in-law, who is um, a registered dietitian. She does a lot of um, you know work with with kids as well, and talking about how the um, the development, the social development of children who uh, who ha- started out um, young and uh, going through the first two years of this masking, their social cues were very much delayed because of uh, how everyone was masked and so they didn't go through the normal uh, cycles of being able to respond to facial cues and some of these things and so there is actually a harm associated with masking i mean is that a basis on which a parent could object and say i'm not going to subject my child to that kind of harm well absolutely and you raise a really good point and something that is, is as a policymaker was very frustrating to me is you had these health, uh, quote-unquote, experts, which now I think it's, it's fair to say the vast majority of Americans really don't trust what comes out of the CDC. Um, but we're, we're really looking through at a silo of only for eradicating any kind of illness to zero. Well, as a school board member, our job is about you know, ensuring an, uh, a learning and working environment that allows an, uh, academic success to thrive. And, and so obviously... It was clear, again, not having to be an expert in these things, you could realize and see how this would be an impediment to a child's academic development, particularly in the early stages uh, when you're talking about facial cues and the phonics and development. And we are seeing a a tremendous um, amount of children with speech delays and reading delays. Not only did the lockdowns have a a substantial um, impact on children, uh, academic uh, growth because of virtual learning and what have you, but the the masks only exacerbated it. 
And again, I think to myself, I, you know, I was talking to Kelly, a, a, a mom in California, a very progressive state, I think we all know. Um, and it was the mask right from then and there that said she, that was the reason that she's gotten involved and she hasn't stopped since. And that was about almost two years ago. She's mobilizing parents uh, from Northern California to Southern California to make sure they understand what's going on, make sure they understand what's, uh, you know, how to advocate and have a voice and how to run for office. And we're helping train them. So to me, I just look at this thing and say, you know, it, it shocked me to hear Maryland was bringing this back. But then you hear little pockets of the areas of the country, you know, kind of dangling this fear mongering uh, in front of us again. Um, and since then, I feel like uh, the leadership's office, school board training, we get our phone blowing up recently to say, hey, we're not, we're not going to stand for this. And, and, and that's, you know, I guess it's the silver lining that it has woken moms and dads up who, again, they really weren't politically active. They, they didn't consider themselves one partisanship or not, but they are now involved. And, and that is what our government's based on about you know, our government by the people for the people. And so I am happy to see people active, engaged, and fighting back. And, and there's nothing people will fight harder for, nothing, than when it comes to their children. As well they should. And so, Bridget Ziegler, uh, how would you advise parents then who uh, maybe their school district is contemplating having a mask mandate come back and they don't want to subject their children to that, but you know there isn't a school board opening quite yet. They're, they're looking at that potentially for the future, but um, what can they do now to stand up and say, you know, no, I'm not going to subject my child to that? Listen, there's strength in numbers, and I always advocate. So there's two things. I always say the way you advocate is equally as important as how uh, as what you're advocating for. So be thoughtful, um, but strategic. And honestly, if you are able to get, mobilize people around your community, get a petition signed, get an email um, chain set up to to make sure your locally elected officials, school board members, state reps recognize that this will not stand, and start to make sure that the because what this does is it illustrates to the policymakers that, you're, that, that, that constituents are paying attention. And they must be reminded that they in, do, in fact, work for you. Um, and so I think that is a great way to start. Then uh, certainly there's substantial evidence, uh, as we just talked about, about how this can be such an impediment and, and, and real danger to our children. Um, but I believe that mobilization and organizing is absolutely the most important part. And uh, at the Leadership Institute, you can certainly get a hold of me and my team. We'd be happy to help in any way just to give tools and tips on, on how to do effective activism and organizing. And also what we find almost every single time is in those piles of or large groups of active and engaged citizens, people start getting ready to run for office. And that's when we start to really affect that change because we're changing the policymakers. That's great. And how can uh, interested parents contact the Leadership Institute and specifically you and the school board programs to get uh, more of this information and encouragement of how they can mobilize, how they can uh, advocate with with respect, but also uh, with results as well? Absolutely. So go to leadershipinstitute.org forward slash school board, or you can follow me on Twitter at Bridget A. Ziegler. You can message me there. Happy to, I find that it's a great way for people to connect. Uh, and we are across the country there to help however we can. So I do encourage you, please, to, to anyone out there that is concerned about this, reach out to us and we'll, we'll help how we can. Awesome. Well, Bridget Ziegler, thanks so much. And last question for you, too. Um, are there any states that you're aware of that their legislators are contemplating 
uh, you know, any sort of legislation or even you know, from from the executive branch as well to just say uh, and do what Florida has been doing, just saying absolutely no, no mask mandates, none of this COVID hysteria. Um, is anyone else, any other Republicans in the country that are as sane as the Governor DeSantis administration and the Florida legislature that are just saying, you know, we're not going to put up with this on a legislative uh, level? level offhand i'm not i do know jd vance uh, uh congressman from ohio uh is it congressman or senator uh he senator, recently yeah. came out of uh, uh, senator sorry senator uh, jd vance mentioned he went as on the on the floor and, and and brought this forward and and i you know i personally believe these are these are state issues but good for him for bringing bringing this forward um so that again it, it really they have the benefit of the bully pulpit to to illustrate that this will never happen again and, um, you know, at every level of government to protect the freedoms of, of our Americans. I, I support and respect that. Um, but I, I do think it was a great opportunity for uh, to sound the alarm. Um, and, and, and again, I think there's nothing wrong with being proactive, even if they aren't in your local area actually um, threatening this per se yet. There's nothing wrong with organizing now and letting uh, your local elected officials know that they you will not stand for that and get as many people you can to let their voices be heard, whether it be showing up at school board meetings, whether it be signing a, a petition or actually starting an email chain. I find those to be very effective, even as, a, as a, an elected official. Those emails, if they're not copied and pasted and they have but the theme is, 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 is the same, you let your voices be heard and share those with your, I mean, these are public servants. They're there to serve you. Make sure they know and don't wait until it's uh, really maybe down the, down the, down a couple steps and they're ready to vote on it. Go be proactive and make sure you make your voices heard to let people, uh, let your elected officials know that you'll not stand for any more of the tyrannical policies we saw uh, during COVID. Yeah, really well said. Bridget Ziegler, really appreciate your comments. Director of the Leadership Institute School Board Programs. You can find her on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Bridget A. Ziegler. And, uh, you know, th- this is such an important point that we need to be engaged and active now. A lot of us, I think, were, uh, were just saying, okay, well, you know, COVID is done. That's never coming back again. And sort of said, well, you know, we have the victory, so we're going to continue to just move on. Well, we need to go to our legislators. Why isn't every uh, majority Republican legislature in the country contemplating this? Well, if you call your state and local officials and you are active and engaged, if they get even 100 phone calls, that is a huge, huge amount on an issue, they will have to respond and be engaged. We have to uh, take control of our government as we the people, because we are the ones who actually are in control of government and we need to be engaged. So um, on all of these issues, we have to know what's going on. We have to be engaged and we have to further promote a free society so that government does not infringe on any of our rights. You can always reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.